Welcome to No Ad, No Problem, a podcast devoted to college tennis and growing the game. Select episodes will be featured on the Great Shot podcast feed, but make sure you also subscribe to No Ad, No Problem on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at JTweetsTennis and Instagram at No Ad, No Problem. I'm your host, John. Let's serve it up. Hey everyone, welcome to an episode of Transfer Palooza. If you follow college sports, then you know that name, image, and likeness isn't the hottest thing around. It's actually the transfer portal. College tennis, like many other sports, has now seen so many athletes take advantage of the NCAA granting additional eligibility and waiving transfer restrictions. We're headed into year three of this new Transfer Palooza era, and as students start classes across the country, I wanted to break down the most intriguing men's transfers for this upcoming season. And joining me to do that on today's episode is first-time guest Ethan Moskowski. Ethan was a four-year member of the Virginia men's team from 2018 to 2021, where he was a multi-year ACC academic honor roll and ITA scholar athlete recipient. But most notably, he was Virginia's biggest cheerleader as they captured the NCAA title this year. Ethan, welcome to the show. Are you still riding the high from Champagne? It's hard not to be. The only thing that's uh, beginning to, I guess, bring me back down to reality is the fact that I'm excited to see if they can do it again, bringing back most of the same team. So, yeah, you could ride the summer high of just like NCAA champion. And now, as we're talking 2023 season, you know, it's a whole different pressure. Yes, exactly. I know that they're excited to get back to work. And, and they were talking about how, what the things they can do to try and repeat within a day of winning the first one. So, uh, yeah, time to focus on the future, I guess. There you go. Well, it's certainly been done before uh, for the Virginia squad. So, you know, pressure's on. And as a fellow UVA alum, I have so many UVA specific questions that I would love to ask you, but probably have to save that for another show because we're here to talk transfers. And before we dive in, I wanted to start with some more meta questions for you and get your take as a student athlete from this era. And the first is, if you listen to any college coach, you know, regardless of tennis or other sport, talk about this era of transfer, a lot of them will talk about how the concept of loyalty has evolved. And I think that that's true in a lot of ways. I think we're seeing transfers. You look at Cam Moore transferring from UNC to Duke. We're seeing transfers that probably we would never have seen before five years ago, let alone 20 years ago. How do you think the concept of loyalty has changed for student athletes? Yeah, well, I think generally speaking, the majority of transfers that you're seeing are still getting their degrees from one place. So uh, I don't think coaches have to worry about when they get a commitment, am I just getting people who are going to be here for a year or two and then leave? I still think far and away, the vast majority of people are are getting their degrees from one place. But particularly for the group of us that were in school when, when COVID happened, uh, it's opened the door for athletes to try something new once they get their degree to, to maybe jump ship, so to speak, to, to see if they can find a team where their role might be a little bit different, whether that's moving up or down the lineup uh, or for, for a lot of people. And I'm sure we'll get into this uh, maybe go hunt the national title uh, in in an extra year. Um, So I still think the vast majority of students are, are loyal to the places where they begin their journey and where they're, you know, their goal is to get their college degree first and foremost for a lot of us. Uh, But it's definitely added the caveat of 
college athletes getting essentially a free agency period for the first time where they get to, you know, shop around if they want and see if there's an opportunity out there that gives them something different at the very least from what they've had for, for four years. And you mentioned that free agency period. I think that's like the best way to think about it. It has certainly added an element of excitement for fans, right? I mean, we're here talking about the most intriguing transfers. It adds a new dynamic that really wasn't there before. It also, I understand, adds a burden on coaches as they also need to manage, you know, this this transfer pipeline. You talk about trying something new. And so from what you've seen, you know, what are the factors that contribute to a player? One, deciding that they want to transfer and maybe even do they want to take advantage of that additional eligibility that, you know, COVID has, has brought them. And then two, once they make that decision, how are they choosing, you know, what school they want to go to? Yeah. I think there are a bunch of things that come into to play and everyone's different. Um, I think you're seeing, um, you're seeing a lot of students who are choosing to transfer for, for the exact reasons that I, I sort of just said, which is they want to go try and win a national title. I mean, that that's the big one that comes to mind. And there are a lot of players that we can, we can sort of run through the list of historical transfers in the last couple of years where it feels like that is the, the goal. You know, we talk about the Baylor team from a few years ago that made a run to the national finals with three yep. fifth-year transfers anchoring the back of the lineup. Uh, and that plays into the school of choice, the decision to transfer. They were transferring from schools that, make the NCAA tournament, maybe can contend in a conference tournament to go win your conference tournament, play in an NCAA final, get that sort of uh, level of experience. But you're also seeing transfers on a different level where people are making change of scenery transfers. Maybe the fit just hasn't been right. Uh, you, you tend to see those before guys graduate. Um, we have a couple of those this year for sure, uh, where guys are seeking out a, a new feeling, a new energy in the program. Um, and you have people who are looking for a different opportunity. They want to move up the lineup. They want to move down the lineup. Maybe they want to get closer to a buddy of theirs who they've, you know, grown up with. Maybe they want to get, they want to follow an assistant coach that they had for years. We see, we've seen a couple of those on the men's and women's side this year. Um, so it, it is really player specific, but the big one that jumps out, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this today are the guys who are going to teams because they believe they can win a national title at the new school. Yeah. Yeah. I think when we talk about most intriguing transfers, those usually are fall into that bucket. Either, you know, it's, it's title chasing or at the very least saying, I think I want to play pro tennis and I want to go to a program where I can really focus on tennis and I'll have guys who will challenge me, who I can practice with. Maybe I was number one player at my previous school. That was one role I was able to fill to be like the guy on that team. And now I'm happy to play elsewhere in the lineup and continue to grow my tennis game and just see if this could be a long-term professional opportunity as well. So with that said, let's dive into these intriguing transfers. And the way that we'll structure this is we've chatted a little bit off mic. And so what we're going to do is break down these selections into a few categories. We'll start with awarding, you know, the transfer you award. We'll then talk through our four most intriguing transfers, and then we'll each award one wild card. That one we have not agreed on off mic. So I'm excited to see where you take that. Cool. So first with transfer you, you mentioned that Baylor 2021 team for me, obviously transfer you is a play on the Netflix documentary last chance you, which was about, you know, D one football players kind of going down to the uh, community college level for a chance to kind of go back to the D one level. 
So it's, it's a, it's a play on that, but really the team that I think best embodies this is the Baylor 21 team. Right. And I think that season in particular, it was the season immediately after COVID you saw a lot of schools, the UNC women, for example, where they kept their players for an additional year, but Baylor was really the only one that quickly brought in a whole new crop, right? You mentioned, you know, uh, Stokowiak and Furman from Duke, and then they bring in Charlie Broom, played number one at Dartmouth. And I think, I don't know if people are ready for this conversation, but, you know, this might be Brian Boland's last impact on college tennis <laughs> is kind of developing the blueprint for the transfer Palooza era, because since that Baylor team, right, we've started to see that as a model, right? In 2022, you saw the Pepperdine women employ it. And now in year three, I think across the board, even on the women's side, eight of the top 10 women's programs are bringing in transfers. This has now sort of become the norm. And so as we look at programs this year, I think there are two in particular that stand out in terms of either the volume of transfers or the uh, impact of those transfers, and that's Kentucky and Tennessee. But we're going to talk about those uh, elsewhere in this pod. So we decided to give the Transfer You 2023 award to the North Carolina men. And the reason for that is that they bring in two players from Princeton who played at the top of the Princeton lineup. You have Ryan Segerman, who played number one last season. He reached top 50 in the ITA singles ranking. And then you have Carl Poling, who ITA Rookie of the Year, his freshman season in 2019, reached almost the top 25 of the ITA singles ranking this past year based on his fall results. So they both come into North Carolina. They're enrolling in their MBA program there. My first question for you, Ethan, is are they the Furman Sokowiak duo for the North Carolina men? Uh, well, I think they're going to be different. Uh, for a couple of reasons. The the first is, you know, Furman and Sokoviak were in a, a really interesting situation where number one, they were transferring to a school in Baylor where they actually already had a teammate from the past who was on the team, right? So Ryan Dickerson was there. They had some experience with members of the team in that context, which can ease the transition at the very least. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the second is Sokoviak and Furman showed up. And I think we knew from jump with the quality that Baylor had in the top three of their lineup that there was sort of, it was unlikely that come May we were going to see those guys in the top half of the lineup. They played one and two for their, their school at Duke. Though Furman, I, Spencer Furman moved around the lineup a bit more, but Nick Sikoyak was a staple at the top of that lineup. Uh, And we sort of knew that the highest maybe they'd play was the three spot. I think Nick Sikoyak, got up to three at some points, but really by the NCAA tournament, they were the anchors in that lineup at four and six. Um, I think the ask on Ryan Sagerman and Carl Poling is going to be a lot higher. Um, they're responsible for filling a hole left by Ben Sagoin, who is at the two spot for UNC basically for five years and a very good one at that. Um, and one of them is going to have to fill that spot almost certainly. When you look at their recruiting class, when you look at what they're they're taking with them from last year, I think it's really likely that those guys are even filling in the two and three spots at UNC, um, which the burden is just going to be a little bit higher, I think, than than what was placed upon uh, Spencer Furman and Nick Sikowiak when they first showed up to Baylor. The expectations are different as well because that was a Baylor team we all looked at and said, wow, maybe that team can contend for a national title. I don't know if UNC is in that conversation uh, but their roles are just going to be a little different. And so we'll have to see. 
Yeah, I think that's right. The expectations are different. This is a UNC team who post Blumberg era last season is still rebuilding, right? And they're clearly leveraging the transfer portal to do that rebuilding. You know, we've now seen this sort of Ivy pipeline emerge. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why that's the case. Uh, Obviously, on the women's side, we're seeing, you know, um, Brianna Schvetz from Princeton. You know, we're seeing players from Penn transfer to Duke. Right. There's a there's a growing pipeline there. And I think there's a few reasons for it. I'd love you for you to talk through that. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be any number of things. And and so I'll start with the first one, one that I think would happen in any sort of uh, on any college team is is people do talk. And as you get at a place like Princeton or at the Ivy, in the Ivy League schools, you can't do a fifth year. You yeah. have to complete you have to complete your four years of eligibility in your four years of, of your undergraduate degree. Yeah. I think, um, which, I think that's huge, right? I think that that's a, a huge point to underscore yeah. is that they have this eligibility and they can't just stay at Princeton and exactly. you know, use it for their fifth year. Exactly. So they can't stay. So they have to go someplace else. Yep. Uh, and then you get in a situation where in the case of Carl Pauling and Ryan Segerman, I refuse to believe that this wasn't a conversation they had when it was, Hey, we have the opportunity to go to the same place. Are we interested in doing that? You know, mm-hmm. oh, you're looking at UNC, so am I. Oh, how'd you like, how was your conversation with the coach, right? These are conversations when, you know, you spent the last three or four years in practice, in matches, on the bus, eating lunch. You've done all these things with these people. You're going to have these sorts of conversations when this opportunity emerges, which for everybody who plays tennis in the Ivy League from this era, you have this opportunity. It's been put in front of you. Yep. Um, so I think that's a huge factor in it. I also think when you only have one year or two years, the, the cultural fit factor is, is really, really quite big. Um, you have eight months, nine months, if you're a one-year transfer, to, to make this work and to make it stick. So you want to go someplace where you feel comfortable. You want to go someplace where maybe the academic uh, requirements placed upon you are something you're used to or well-adjusted yep. to. You want to know that you're in a community of people who are going to going to have your back, who are going to you know support you when things get things get difficult, which which they will. There's a cultural change no matter what happens when you move from one program to another, or just leave one program, um, and so there can be a snowball effect. There's a now a, a growing community of people who have made this exact sort of jump, and they're all going to be within ten to twelve miles of one another. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that. There there creates the level of magnetism between between programs that way. Yeah, I, I think that's all totally right. I think the other thing too is the Ivies didn't play in 2021. And I think we forget yeah. that sometimes, right? So some players, you look at Carl Poling, he was a freshman in 2019. He actually has two years of eligibility, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, if you were in the Ivy League during this time, like you have a lot of room to play with here. Um, so I think those are a lot of the factors for why you're starting to see these, this Ivy pipeline emerge, you know, staying on the well, East it- coast. Going to these it's such a market. Schools. Yeah, exactly. It's such right. a market for coaches. Coaches know that they need to fill their spots uh, ultimately with guys who want to compete and guys who are at that level. And so you can just pick off guys from the top end of Ivy League lineups. We're going to talk about more Ivy League transfers. Yep. We use Charlie Broom as an example, right? The, the quality of Ivy League tennis is very high, but they're, they're required to make a decision after graduating of, do I want to keep playing college tennis? Do I want to go pro or do I want to go get a job? Yep. And if they want to keep playing college tennis, they have to go someplace else. So what a great market for coaches to find find new talent. 
Yeah. Particularly if you're an elite academic institution where someone feels like, you know, they get their undergrad at, at Princeton and they go to UNC for their master's. That is not a bad Absolutely. gig. Uh, so I think we will continue to see this. Um, I do not think these are the last Ivy transfers to the state of North Carolina. So it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how segment and polling um, factor in. Obviously, the demands of an MBA program are different than undergrad. But I think you made a good point that coming from an elite academic, IV is probably going to be in their benefit. Yeah, so for sure. With that said, with the transfer you handed out, let's move into our four most intriguing transfers. And we will start with least you forget uh, Blaze Bicknell transferring from Florida to Tennessee. Bicknell in his second year at Florida was undefeated 32 and 0 in singles played primarily at the number four position for the Gators helped them win their first NCAA title in program history. He was then unceremoniously departed from Florida in the fall of his third year there after having played several fall events and following that announced that he would be transferring for the 2022 season to Tennessee. And I think that this was a, uh, a parcel bomb heard around the world for a few reasons. The first was Florida and Tennessee have certainly developed uh, quite a fierce rivalry over the years. And Bicknell has certainly been, you know, sort of a lightning a rod. Yes, a factor <laughs> in that controversy, right? Whether it is the line calls, uh, whether it is the viral hooking, right? There has been a, uh, he's certainly been the, a factor. The celebration of taking your shirt off and yes. clinching and yelling at your opponent. Yes. He's, he's played a role in that, right? He has played a role in increasing the intensity for sure. And so he was deemed ineligible in one of what I thought was sort of one of the more embarrassing moments of 2022 for the Tennessee program, but he will be eligible for 2023, obviously notwithstanding the controversy, Ethan, what makes him one of the more intriguing transfers for you? Well, you have to start with the controversy, right? (laughs) We did, right? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly one of the great parts of this is that we've been sort of sitting here waiting to see blaze bicknell show up in tennessee gear and step out onto the court and play the university of florida and this year we're actually going to get to see it now the university of florida is going to look a little bit different but potentially entirely different but (laughs) potentially entirely different but still we're going to get that image we're going to get blaze bicknell in a tennessee uniform playing the university of florida and that's awesome is he the villain of college tennis Oh, I don't think I don't think he's the villain. I don't want to cast anyone really as the villain. But look, ultimately, we've all seen Twitter. We've all seen Instagram. We've taken part in it. We've enjoyed it. There have been memes made about it on all sides about so many different players. When you provide college tennis with a with a story as dramatic as this one, and it, and it was very dramatic, and it felt like it was so dramatic in such a short period of time. We got yep. one week of kind of craziness and then it kind of falls flat with him not being able to play the the level of excitement and drama i think about when this finally happens is is going to be there it's going to be a relevant factor but most importantly for tennessee the last we saw of blaze bicknell as a college tennis player he was a really good one he was he was undefeated in the year that the University of Florida won the national title. He was a huge factor in that University of Florida lineup. And 
now he's going to play for Tennessee, a Tennessee team that really only loses one of its top six. So one of the reasons why he's super intriguing is because, yes, you lose Adam Walton, but we've seen the potential of Joe Monday. And now you add Blaze Bicknell to the fold and you look at a Tennessee team that's made two straight final fours. And suddenly you're like, wow, Tennessee is back in the position to do this again and make a real run at a national title. And ultimately that makes a transfer, not just really valuable in this context, but really exciting. We're all sort of waiting to see, I guess, what we, what we get from blaze. Yep. I think that's a great point, right? It's very rarely just the player that makes it an intriguing transfer. It is almost always the surrounding context. And in this case, it's sort of a, you know, a trifecta of like, you have the player, you have the team who's bringing back everyone but Walton, a team you know that has made the NCAA Final Four. We've seen the jumps Monday has made. And then in Bicknell's case, he's not the only transfer that Tennessee is bringing in, right? They no, he's one of many, many, many transfers. Four other players. They're going to have five transfers on this roster that lost yeah. one guy, right? And so yep. we should mention, right, they're bringing in the duo of Kozlov and Kent, right, who played for LSU. They're bringing in Rodriguez from UT Chattanooga and they're bringing Broncatelli from Purdue. I don't know how they are going to have these 10 guys on the roster, but that's certainly an added element to Bicknell's story here and coming into the Tennessee program. Well, and by the way, you keep in mind the fact that Angel Diaz was a transfer and he's, he's now in his second year there, but he was a transfer. Emil Hud is now in his second year there. He was a transfer. The vast majority of the Tennessee team is not players that showed up day one freshman year as Tennessee players, which is an interesting thing. We've never really seen that. It's sort of an advent of this era of college tennis. That's an Um, excellent point. But it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how this lineup shakes out because you do run into a that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen sort of problem, which is you have. Johannes Monday, who's going to play. He's going to play one, in fact. I think anyone would stake their claim on that. Blaze Bicknell's going to factor into this lineup. Emil Hud is going to factor into this lineup. And Shinsuke Mitsui is going to factor into this lineup. That's four guys who we can comfortably say are locks for this lineup. Angel Diaz, Martin Prada, Mm -hmm. Boris Kozlov, Hunter Kent, Thomas Rodriguez, Gabriele Brancatelli. No one transfers from the two or three spot like Hunter Kent played last year at, at, at LSU to then be sitting on the bench for the next year. Right. Right. No, he it, wants to win a title. He wants to win a title and he probably wants to play. Yes. Doing that, uh, yes exactly. Which means that their practices are going to be really competitive and you have a 10 man roster. When that lineup comes out for indoors, there are going to be people who are going to be told you're not playing. You're not playing this whole time. You're not playing NCAAs. You're not playing uh, indoors. You're not playing the SEC tournament. And some of these guys are using eligibility, using their last year of eligibility maybe for that. So it's going to be an interesting experiment to see how it how it breaks out. The SEC is changing this year with Florida, and I'm, I know we'll get to that. So you do, you do have to be excited for a school like a Tennessee who it feels like in our mind's eye, at least a little bit for the last couple of years has been playing second fiddle to Florida, even if it's been more even than we sometimes, we sometimes speak about it as being, uh, this is an opportunity for Tennessee and a number of other sec schools 
to to really rise to being the team that dominates the SEC. Yeah, and you know, irony is the the wrong word because it's more emblematic that we're talking about maybe the usurping of Florida as the number one school in the SEC, and we are talking about someone transferring from Florida to Tennessee. It's a huge factor of it. I mean, the University of Florida team that won the national title, we knew that come this time, Josh Goodyear would be gone. We knew Andy Andrade would be gone. We knew Duarte Valley would be gone. We probably, a bunch of us thought Sam Riffis would move on, especially when he won an NCAA singles title. Well, the two people that that leaves are Blaze Bicknell and Ben Shelton. And Ben is writing his own story as we speak. And Blaze has sort of turned the page on that chapter. Yeah, wrote, so. wrote his own story, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. He's 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 turned the page and he's on to the next chapter. And so that Florida team suddenly, it's not there anymore. Well, let's talk about that Florida team because we, we do have an intriguing transfer on the list here who is moving to Florida. And that's Axel Nefe. He's transferring from Notre Dame to Florida. And similar to the conversation around the Ivies, Notre Dame, right, is another school that has become sort of a feeder school for these fifth-year guys. So last year, Tristan McCormick go to Georgia, Richard Ciamara go to Texas and win the NCAA doubles title. You know, so Notre Dame, another academic, strong academic school, guys taking advantage of that fifth year at these elite uh, athletic institutions. And Nefe pretty consistently played number one throughout his tenure at Notre Dame, certainly in those final few seasons, you know, finished his junior year at, you know, number 38 in the ITA singles rankings. Ethan, I know you're familiar with him from the ACC battles, you know, talk a little bit more about why he's such an intriguing transfer. Again, this is someone where the context of the Florida team really exacerbates what this means for, for Nefe coming into Gainesville. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about, uh, you know, the, the, the NAF transfer is the fact that we knew about this one pretty early on. I yeah. think we've seen a lot of transfers where sort of they finish, the student is finishing their degree at one institution and then sort of late in the season or even after the season says, I'm going to so-and-so for, for a graduate year. Yeah, in I mean, the we're case seeing of transfers Axel, this week for next week, basically. Yeah, for yeah. next week, exactly. In the case of Axel, we knew that he was going to the University of Florida before he started playing his senior year at Notre Dame. Yeah, They'd announced this last summer. And um, that does seem to be a trend with Notre Dame, and I'm not sure why, Yeah, but that was the case for, at least for Ciamara. I don't know Ciamara. about McCormick, but we heard about these early. Yeah, but in the case of Axel, well, let's talk about how much context has changed. When Axel has com- when Axel committed to Florida, they were probably weeks on the back of having won a national title. Sam had just won NCAA singles. There, everything's great in Gainesville, right? Fast forward to now, we all of the aforementioned players have graduated. Ben Shelton's looking more and more like he should be playing pro tennis. <laughs> And yes, we are recording this after Ben <laughs> Shelton has made the third round of the Cincinnati Open, beating number five in the world, Casper Ruth. Not many players beat top 10 players in the world and then go back to college tennis. You know, so Axel probably committed to the University of Florida when the cupboard was as full as it's ever been. Yep. And he's going to arrive to a completely different situation. And part of the reason that that's intriguing is 
what's the University of Florida tennis team going to look like next year? We have no idea. I mean, we know that Bonetto factored into the lineup at times this year. Shelby factored into the doubles lineup extensively this year. They're bringing in top recruits. We know Jonah Braswell, at least through his family, we know that the Braswells are very good tennis players. We know that they've got top 50 ITF guys coming in, but otherwise we don't, we have no idea what that team's going to look like come January. They're going to play the university of Texas to kick off their season and their lineup could be, I mean, any number of things other than the fact that if Ben Shelton does by some miracle, come back, he'll be playing one. That's all we know about the university of Florida. The rest of it, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I know you're so right. I mean, how often does a team lose their entire top six in one year? I mean, almost yeah. never, right? And it's certainly only a byproduct of these extra years, some people taking them, some people not. I mean, that's sort of a coach's worst nightmare, right? Is to yeah, lose I mean, your entire top six. The the UVA men's tennis team that I showed up to, I'll, I'll never forget it, right? On the back that, of winning well, three straight of national titles. I don't titles. know if any of us will forget it, Ethan. <laughs> On the back of winning three straight national titles and our first match, the three returning players, Carl was hurt, Henrik was hurt, and Ash, who wasn't in the top six, played and ash was our best player for the majority of that season he was a top 10 player in the country so you never know what you're going to get but it's a different team than the one axel neff probably thought he was signing up for yep. uh which again it will lead to some some interesting moments for the florida team we have no idea what the upside of this team is could they be a top 15 team if all of the freshmen pan out and Benetto makes a jump and axel neff is the same sort of reliable player we're used to seeing from him and is a top 40 player in the country. Absolutely. They can be a top 15 team. Could it go down in flames and be an absolute disaster? Maybe yeah. we have no idea. No, you're right. And I think the one thing that um, Axel does have is he's used to being the number one guy on the team, right? Absolutely. It's a very different role to do that and kind of accumulate that over four years versus transferring in, probably not expecting to have to maybe play that role. Like maybe would have loved to Ben, like the number two to Ben. Right. Yes. And now to come in and it's sort of, everyone is looking to well, you to lead this team. It's a different ball and, game. And the field of ones that we're expecting to see in the sec this year is top notch. Danny Rodriguez, Liam Draxler, or Dave Diallo, uh, Ethan Quinn, probably Quinn, for yeah. Georgia, Joe Monday at Tennessee, it's a really competitive. Co- I mean, it's always the most competitive conference in a lot of ways. Uh, Andres is going to be upset that I said that, but it's it okay. is usually the most competitive conference in a lot of ways. And at the one spot this year, it feels like it has a ton of talent running through it. And Axel Neff probably thought he was coming in. Maybe I'll play two. Maybe I'll play three. Something like that. And he might be thrust into a spot of like you're going to have to go play the you know the elite ones in the country week in and week out. And we'll have to see how we adjust to it. He could really thrive in that environment. We'll, you know, we'll have to see. Great points. I think it'll be very interesting to see how he adjusts. Let's keep it in the SEC. But before we do, uh, let's take a quick break. So I realized I just said we're going to keep it in the SEC. This entire conversation is about the SEC. All four of our intriguing transfers are... SEC folks, are we SEC homers now? 
Uh, I certainly don't think I am. Uh, I would like to not be accused of that. I'll get very angry text <laughs> messages from my former coaches, teammates, staff, the whole deal. So I refuse to admit that I'm an SEC homer. But I think in the field of uh, transfers, the SEC certainly seems to be out out competing some of its uh, some of its rivals. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the ACC, let's talk about one who's moved from the ACC to the SEC. And that's Theodore Juska transferring from Clemson to Georgia after four years at Clemson, where last season he played at the number one and two single spots, amassing a 14 and five record. He's continued to play a lot of UTR events this summer in Europe, had a lot of success there. You know, this is another player where it's really about the context surrounding this transfer and the team that make this really intriguing, right? He joins a Georgia program that is not only having a ton of success, you know, on the you know freshman side, right? Associate head coach Jamie Hunt is clearly bringing in those top recruits. We've seen that with Ethan Quinn, but obviously last season's success was really predicated on Hamish Stewart, a transfer from Tulane, Tristan McCormick, who we talked about a transfer from Notre Dame. You know, as you look at this Georgia team, why is Juska a piece that's intriguing to you? Well, for a couple of reasons. The first is Ethan Quinn, right? <laughs> the, you know, one of the reasons, like we've said, that transfers become increasingly uh, intriguing is the fact that the the situations that they're walking into is intriguing. And Ethan Quinn, I think, is at the top of everyone's list of like, okay, I want to see this guy play college tennis and see what this looks like. So it starts there. But I think beyond that, one of the common trends that I've noticed of successful teams in the la- in this transfer era. If you look at last year's finalist and winner of NCAAs and the previous year's finalist and winner of NCAAs, on every roster, there's a guy who transferred from a smaller school or from a school, let's say, and then moved down the lineup to play a spot. Yep. So at Baylor, like we've spoken yep. about, Furman, Stokowiak, Broom, at Florida, Josh Goodger is the one that sort of jumps off the page, played quite high at Tulsa, I believe, and then transferred to Florida and became one of the best sixes in the country. You know, at UVA, Barbotzer plays one at Wake Forest after playing three for a couple of years, shows up, struggles inter- you know, intermittently at UVA until NCAA tournament comes around. He's playing six for the team, doesn't lose a match at NCAAs, including the first point off the board in the finals. And then Kentucky, Musatelli, Hurrian, both transfers, both move back in the lineup, both have, you know, a great deal of success. Juska fits that pattern, right? We're not, this is not a guy we're expecting to come in and play one for, for Georgia or two for that matter. I think we sort of know that the top two for Georgia next year, it's going to be Ethan Quinn. It's going to be Phil Henning. We sort of know that that's what we're going to see. Well, the interesting part is where does Juska fit in? Is he going to play three or four? Could they find a spot for him further back? They still do have Trent Bride. They still do have Blake Kreuter. They still have pieces from the teams that have made runs at the NCAA tournament, the team that beat UNC in, in 2021, which was a team that we all thought that UNC team was sort of infallible going into the season. This Georgia team, or a lot of these members on this Georgia team, were a part of that team that made a run to an Elite Eight. So where does Juska fit in? If he fits in at the five spot, this could be the sort of guy that we're talking about in the same vein as Charlie Broom, in the same vein as Musatelli, in the same vein as Hurrian, who play high spots at smaller schools that maybe 
didn't have the opportunity to compete for a national title, show up to a bigger school with bigger expectations, move them down the lineup, and they can become a lock. They can become a point that your team can rely on day in and day out because they've got experience, because they've played higher in the lineup than you're currently asking them to play. He's another one of those pieces that can really be a big factor in the success of this Georgia team. Yeah, I think you nailed it on those. Playing one at your school that might not be a title contender and coming and playing three through six, right? And being that lock there. He certainly fits the bill. And I think there there does need to be that surrounding infrastructure, right? You talk about yeah. Henning, Bride, Kreuter. In a lot of ways, it feels like, well, this George, that Georgia trio who's coming back for their fifth year maybe overperformed in certain instances like knocking yeah. out North Carolina, but probably hasn't had the run that they were looking to have, right? It hasn't been until since 2017 that they had the run at NCAAs. Yeah. And so this is really their final final year. You, I think you need all three of those guys to click. I think you need a bounce back sure. from Bride. I also think there are still questions for me about who does play five and six, right? Who, I think who that else was, plays? Right. Because you mentioned, we mentioned that trio. The only other returners that they have who could play are Paul Sell and Perez Pena, who weren't exactly the six that's going to win you a national championship. I want to go on record on this pod and make a prediction and say that Alex Michelson will graduate early and he will not redshirt and he will actually play somewhere in the Georgia roster next spring. Yeah. It, it seems like they're building towards that, right? We've, they've had an incredible set of recruits, right? Yep. Come in, in the last, in the last year or so you, you, you gave, you tipped your hat to, to coach hunt because they've done an amazing job they're killing they've it on the recruiting trail. full yeah. covered of recruits. Yep. But none of them are there. Yeah. I mean, Ethan Quinn's moment is now, right? We're all yep. aware of it. We're all sort of on the Ethan Quinn train of let's see where this goes for him. Yeah. But, the rest of the recruits aren't there yet. They're not, yeah. they're not in the Georgia uniform playing the dual matches. So as right. great as it is to sit here and say their recruits are so great, the timing needs to sync up for Georgia. Exactly. You need the, you need one of those recruits to be on the roster while you have these three fifth year seniors, right? And while you have Ethan Quinn, because we should not great take point. Ethan Quinn's presence for yep. granted. Yep. He's another one of these guys who's going to get shots, I think, probably somewhat similar to. Ben Shelton's getting this summer. Agreed. He's going to play next summer. If he plays a full season of college tennis, he's going to play a full summer of yep. futures, challengers. Maybe he'll get the, the odd wild card into a pro level, a 250. A, you know, Ben Ben just played Cincinnati, right? right? So, you know, maybe he'll get those looks. And if the results are there to back up what we all sort of think we see in Ethan Quinn, it's not a guarantee that he's on this team next year. Yep. So Georgia definitely the time feels a little bit pressing. Yes. You know? Yeah. I think you got to throw the kitchen sink at it. And the roster right now is way too thin. I mean, yeah. you just juxtaposed to Tennessee. We just talked about 10 guys who could be playing. Georgia doesn't have that. So I would be shocked if we don't see something happen for, for January. So, uh, and that just kind of adds on to, you know, what Juska could contribute, right? Then you are playing at four or five or six, you're a lock there. You have these surrounding team members who can kind of lift you up there. So I think there's a lot of interest intrigue, I'll say, about the Georgia program. And certainly um, Juska is at the top of that. For sure. Juska sort of fits into the different category. You know, we talked about Blaze Bicknell and he's a very sort of shiny object, so to speak. Like he's he's one of these guys who comes with a lot of 
you know, there's a lot of stuff about, about Blaze. He's got an undefeated record on a national championship winning team. And we see, we see transfers like that all the time. UVA got Barbotzer. Bar was a really shiny transfer object because he'd won a national title. He clinched a national title. He'd never not played in a national final in his years at Wake. So he was one of those guys that sort of jumped off the page. And yet, when we talk about models for transfer success, Nick Stokowiak, Spencer Furman, those are the guys that we're talking about, not guys who played at the absolute peak of college tennis until they transferred, moved down the lineup, and sort of hit their stride in a different role than what we were used to seeing them in. Yep. So you heard it here first. McNall and Botts are basically the same. <laughs> but I actually, no. No. straight out of the mouth of Ethan Moskowski. But no, I actually do think, and people won't like this, but I do think there is a parallel there in that the, there was the year gap, right? That I think yes. did mute the year off, the like, for sure, the shock of it immediately, right? It was. Well, and, and I think, in, and I can say this with good authority because Bar and I are friends. I think it changes the level that somebody shows up with. You know, I think Barr would be the first guy to say that year off. He wasn't, I mean, Blaze is playing some pro tennis. Barr wasn't playing pro tennis. Barr wasn't right. playing tennis. And right. so it was an adjustment for him to work his way back into the college tennis, sort of the cycle of it, the grind, the balancing it with, in his case, being in an NBA program. It took him time to sort of get the wheels moving again and it wouldn't shock me necessarily if if that's the case for a guy like Blaze. Whereas in the case of Giuska, he's he this is so exciting for him, right? He's going from a place in Clemson where they had look, they beat Duke this year. They had a huge win over Duke at the ACC tournament that a lot of us took great joy in watching. But he he, you know, played one for a school that, you know, they wanted to make the NCAA tournament. Ultimately, that was the goal is make the NCAA tournament. Now, I mean. The University of Georgia is like college tennis university. They've got the biggest stadium. Yep. They host NCAAs sometimes. Fans come out in in huge numbers and numbers that most of us don't see yep. to to go watch them. He's going to get a different role in the lineup. He's going to play behind a, a guy who we all think is a really a legitimate pro level talent. And the expectations are go compete for a national title. Yep. And I'm sure for him that's that's got to be the best part of all of this. Absolutely. I was reading an interview with Hamish Stewart, who said basically exactly that, that as a junior, I mean, he was not getting any looks from the Georgias of the world, right? Yeah. And so to come to Georgia for a year after playing at Tulane, it's it's the dream, right? You have the this pack stands, you're playing at the you know home of college tennis in a lot of ways, yeah. and you're out there to, you know, you know, wear the red and black and try and win them a title. In that case, they fell short last year, but it's the same story here with, with yeah. Juska. So yeah, looking forward 100%. to seeing what he offers to the Georgia program. Obviously, it's going to be a lot of uh, intrigue around Georgia and the SEC. At the top of that, I would say, is our fourth intriguing transfer here. And certainly not least is Alafia Ayani transferring from Cornell to Kentucky I'm kind of glad we're talking about him last because he sort of sums up everything we've talked about. He's coming from yeah. an Ivy. He's going to the SEC. He's going to a Kentucky team with high expectations coming off of their NCAA finals. He stepped back on Ianni. He was uh, Ivy League Rookie of the Year in 2018, comes in with a season of eligibility. Last year played number one for Cornell. Really solid record there, 12 and 5. ITA singles, top 50 player. 
has had a really excellent summer as well, right? He's been qualifying for challengers, recently made the quarterfinals, the Winnipeg challenger. In a lot of ways, I think you could argue he's the best player who's transferring this season. What makes him uh, intriguing for this Kentucky roster? I, well, so much, yeah. so much really. And and the first thing is the fact that, you know, Alafiayeni is one of these, one of these interesting cases in college tennis. And we do see them. Uh, this was a guy who was 27 in the world as a junior. Okay. He was ITF 27 in the world. These are normally the recruits that we don't see at places like Cornell. And then when they wind up at places like Cornell, they can get lost in the shuffle yeah. and we can sort of lose sight of the talent that exists that's not going to happen this year, right? He's going to go play for a team that I think most people are going to regard as having the ability to go compete for a national championship. None the least of which is because their top two, should they come back is among the elite top twos in the country in Liam Draxel and Gabe Diallo. Well, that bodes even better for Kentucky because a is a guy who, like we've said, played one at a university and he's not going to be asked to play one again. Max, he's going to be asked to play three. There's no way he's breaking into the top two of Draxel and Diallo. That's a lock to be the top two for Kentucky all season long. So when you talk about transfers that sort of fit like a hand in a glove, what's Kentucky missing from its national championship uh, run basically to the finals? Well, Hurrian graduated. Musatelli graduated. Those guys played three and four. Yep. That's where Lafayette is going to fit into this exactly. team. So he, he, brings all of the potential in the world to essentially allow Kentucky to run it back and use the same sort of, you know, match calculus that they did to get to a national final to do it again, but this time with the experience of it and another year of Gabe Diallo maturing and getting better. And I mean, he's already so good. And another year of Liam Draxel being Liam Draxel. And, yeah. you know, you, you get to run all of it back with a guy in Alafiani who, you look at, yeah, I'm sure it hurts them on a personal level to not have to not have hurrying around because I think he was a really I mean, he was he was one of the beating hearts of that team. That was the sense that I got from watching them play in the national final. Um, but now they'll they'll bring in a guy in Lafayette who'll get the opportunity to really shine on a national stage that he might not have gotten at Cornell, but in a position where I think he's really well positioned to succeed. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you're so right, right? What does Kentucky need? They need an excellent three and four. That was their recipe this past season. And they certainly bring that in, in Ieni. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Kentucky's top three and Virginia's top three are hands down the top, the top two best top three in the, <laughs> the top country. two best. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, I don't think, I don't think it's close. And for Kentucky, that's exactly what they need, right? They can't lose her in and just kind of, and Moose Italian slide everyone up. That's not a recipe yeah. for success. And so they're bringing in Ieni to really fill that slot. And I think the other component here is Tahabadi from Wake Forest. 100%. Right? And so 100%. we've seen a lot of these pairs and duos come in. They're essentially doing a swap, straight swap. Yep. But they're saying, yep. hurry in, Moose out, uh, Ieni, body in. Plus, we're going to get Diallo and Draxel another year later, who's yeah. certainly on the Diallo side. I mean, you've just seen the, the strides he's made. I mean, I mean the potential a there is obvious than he was in yeah. May. Exactly. So 100%. there you go. And you still have Lapidot who played five. So yeah. well, that's the, the, 
the real big caveat, I think, in all of this is we're, we're sitting here saying, well, yes, you know, Draxel, Diallo, they're going to play more or less in the same spots. I think there's an above 50% chance we see Diallo playing one this year and Draxel playing two. I totally agree. We'll have to wait and see what, uh, what Coach Kaufman decides to do. That would be my instinct is that yep. maybe finally give him the flip. Who knows? Maybe Joshua Labadat's made big strides, and all of a sudden, moving him from five to four isn't uh, isn't that big of a deal. And then you're you know it just they have so many different ways that they can change the complexion of their lineup, and they've brought two more pieces in who are legitimately very valuable top five pieces on any roster. Mix that with the talent that's already there, the talent that I mean, let's be honest, carried them to a national final in a lot of ways. It's it's hard not to sit here and go. Yeah, and he's a massive impact transfer for for Kentucky. Exactly. Yeah, it just feels like this is a straight swap in a lot of ways. They now have a, a five player, you know, group that they can play around with in the same way that they did this past season. Those five players took them to the NCAA finals. I think number six is probably still an open question for Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. Don't know if they have filled that gap yet, but. Yeah. Look, it didn't it, stop them from making the NCAA finals. It it remains the the question for Kentucky. And I think we're going to see more of the same from Kentucky this year that we saw from, from last year, unless there's, you know, a trick up the sleeve that we haven't heard about yet, which is there's going to be a little bit of plug and play, a little bit of figuring out as we go, who's riding the hot hand, who do we trust in the big moment? Uh, and, and for what it's worth, you know, one of the more dramatic matches of the NCAA tournament last year maybe the most dramatic match of the NCAA tournament last year was that Kentucky Ohio state match where as much as we want to credit the top five of Kentucky, JJ Mercer hanging around and forcing a third set in that match. I mean, that was the death sentence for the momentum that Ohio state built up at the beginning of that match. When he forced that third, all of a sudden Ohio state had a long way to go to win that match. So JJ Mercer continues to make strides. They have, they have more options than JJ Mercer, but, you know, he seemed to be the guy that by the end of, of the season, that's who they trusted. He continues to make strides in his game. You, like we said, the, there were the proven entities on that team, the two transfers. There's reason to have a lot of belief that this team can can continue to sort of move the needle. Yep. And this just feels like a team that will, uh, they tasted success this year and they're going to want more, right? There certainly yeah. doesn't feel like they're satisfied. Yeah, it's an interesting situation because the SEC, there are so many teams like that. I mean, the the South Carolina team, UVA sort of had its moment with the SEC last year, right? And so I got to watch UVA play the best four teams in the SEC, basically, in, in a row in South Carolina, Florida, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Uh, and South Carolina brings back almost the same cast of characters. We've already spoken about Florida. We've already spoken about Tennessee. So it's going to be really competitive. It's not going to be sort of a march to a throne sort of situation where they can just expect that. But I think that's a good thing for them. I think guys like Liam Drax will thrive on the competition and they enjoy sort of the heat of the battle. And I think it'll be good for guys like Alafiani to get the exposure to that level of SEC competition on a random Friday in March, which a lot of schools don't get to do. They don't get NCAA level competition until NCAAs. When you're in the SEC, I would also say when you're in the ACC, you do get some of that exposure at different times in the season. So you can show up to May battle tested and sort of ready to ready to go with that, that sort of mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. He wasn't getting that in the, no, it's, it's a, it's a completely different thing. 
It's a completely yeah. different thing to compete in the Ivy League. It's a completely different thing, by the way, just from a season length standpoint. The SEC has so many teams, and some of the road trips are to places that are maybe not the most fun destinations to spend a Sunday in. Um, and so it's a different experience. But I think in this case, having a lot of those matches is a good thing. It'll lead them to a position where come May, they'll be a lot more prepared than if they had a really light schedule or they played all of their biggest rivals at home sort of situation. So that wraps up our, our four most intriguing transfers. Let's transition to our wild cards. These are ones that we have not discussed. Ethan, I'm going to throw it to you first. Who's your wild card transfer that might surprise us in 2023? Who should we be looking out for that we haven't discussed yet? So hopping on the back of what we've just been talking about, I have to go with Tahabadi for a couple of reasons. Okay. The first is I've seen Tahabadi compete. I was on a team where Tahabadi beat a UVA player. I watched teams where UVA players beat Tahabadi. I know the level of competition that Coach Bresky creates at Wake. And this is a guy who's going to come battle-tested with the intention of trying to win a national championship. But beyond that, there are other cultural features to everything that make this a seamless fit. I mean, the University of Kentucky is the University of Canada, right? I know. It's weird Ayeni is not Canadian or French. I mean, it's one of the Ayeni being neither French nor Canadian makes him really the outlier in the group. But between... That's what Diallo makes him intriguing. And Draxel <laughs> and Lapidat and now Tahabadi. It's like it is the University of Canada. So the cultural fits there. I'm sure there are pre-existing relationships that are there, which is probably part of why Taha looked at the University of Kentucky as a great opportunity. So between the cultural fit, his level of expectation from a competition standpoint, what he's used to with being at a school that was already in the mindset of we contend for national titles, right? That's the Wake Forest mindset is we contend for ACC and NCAA titles. So he's, he doesn't have to change his mentality at all. Now he's just culturally switching to a university where he probably already knows a lot of the players. He probably grew up playing with a lot of the players. I'm sure given what we know about, you know, Canadian tennis, he knows Liam Draxel. Yep. He knows Gabe Diallo. They're, they're mostly all Canadian. So yes. most of them probably have known each other for quite a while. So there's going to be a great sense of camaraderie there, I'm sure. And he gets to continue to have that level of expectation for himself. And he's a good tennis player, right? right? He's a good tennis player who's going to get to fit into a spot that's going to be comfortable with him, right? We're looking at the four or five spot probably for, for Taha, which is a spot where he found some success at Wake Forest. Yep. So he seems like a really, really, really smooth fit into a program where he's going to be very comfortable and still be able to, you know, try and reach those goals of uh, winning a national title. Yep. Absolutely. Great pick. I'm going to take a left turn here for my wild card choice. Okay. And I can't have a, a transfer pod without talking about Texas A&M. If you've heard Steve coach, Steve Denton talk about the transfer portal, he has been, uh, you know, he's been shady about the transfer portal and his preference for developing four-year players. And so it was notable for me to see, again, another pair, two UCF players in Hildebrand and JC Roddick transfer from UCF to Texas A&M, a Texas A&M team who I would say has parallels to the UNC team in, you know, they lost so many of their players from that 2021 season. They lost their entire top three. They're still rebuilding in doing that. And it seems like Coach Steve Denton has taken a page 
out of a lot of these programs books and said, maybe I do need to be dipping into the transfer portal. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is it's probably not a good look for the UCF program when the head coach's nephew transfers out. of yeah. the program. Yeah. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. And so, you know, obviously Hildebrand has been very solid for UCF over his tenure. I'm sure he will continue to tr- contribute to the A&M lineup in that five, six spot. It tells me a lot about the, the UCF program. And I think that that's one of the reasons why for me, it's a wild card because I'm one curious to see how these transfers integrate into an A&M program who doesn't have a, t- a ton of track record in doing that Two. I have no idea what the UCF team looks like next season yeah. at this point. Yeah, you get both sides of the coin with this both one. sides of the coin. So <laughs> that's my choice. Obviously, another SEC school, but <laughs> I'll be curious to see how they integrate. And honestly, I feel like we've covered pretty much all of the really notable, intriguing transfers. Of course, there are a few others, but I felt like this is a really thorough overview of what to expect, who to be watching out for. Ethan, I appreciate you walking us through this, sharing your perspective as a former student athlete, now on the outside looking in for as painful as that might be. Um, But before I let you go, I want to run through our receiver's choice segment. I'm going to give you a choice between two options, maybe three, and you tell me which one you'd prefer and why. Sort of a rapid fire. We don't need to kind of get too much into the details here. All right. A lot of talk right now about the move of the NCAA individual tournament to November. Which would you prefer, November or May? Uh, I think if we can adjust the schedule so that it works better in May than it currently does, it's still better in May. I think we do need to build in days for a couple of reasons in between singles and the team event or doubles in the team event. Uh, I think for one, the team event, as we've seen, with weather issues and things like that needs an insurance policy day. They need to have a day that they can back stuff up into. And uh, number two, I think it's bizarre that it's an, it's a disadvantage if your team wins the NCAA tournament. I think it's, I think it's a very strange thing that if your team wins the NCAA tournament, all you get is to sleep in the next day. Credit to guys like Sam Riffis, guys like Ty Kwiatkowski did it at UVA. Peyton Stearns managed, this past year. Peyton Stearns this past year who managed to win the NCAA team event, wake up the next morning. Though they, they usually, they let them play at like 5 p.m. They're the last matches on. But I still think it's a bit strange. I mean, I, I'll use Inyaki as an example. He sort of went through the realm of fire for the NCAA tournament and then kept going, right? He mm-hmm. showed up at, in Champaign, had to play Sam Riffis, jo, uh, Johannes Monday, Gabe Diallo, ne- wins the NCAA title, wakes up the next day, plays Peter Mock from USC, I yep. think, Joe Monday again, Danny Rodriguez, Sam Riffis again. So, I mean, you're talking about four or five guys in seven days who are in the top eight in the country and with no days off because you want NCAAs. That's, that's sort of a strange thing to me. Um, so if they can build in a, you know, a couple of extra days in between, I still think it makes more sense. I think is, I know having spoken to, to Ty Kwiatkowski, it was really special for him as a senior to be done with the team event and to sort of soak in those last few days in a UVA uniform playing for, for the school and for himself after the team event, when sort of the pressure has changed. So I still like the idea of playing it at the end of someone's senior year in particular. Uh, I think it poses some some problems to move to the fall for freshmen and for seniors. So I'd still prefer to see it to see it in May. 
Yep. Yeah. And look, some of those changes are coming in 2023, right? So it felt to me a little premature to make this decision. We were going to have a day off, right? Yep. They've they've reduced the number of team matches at the final site with this, the Sweet 16 yep. Super Regional. Which I am strongly in favor of. I know that there's been <laughs> That some, wasn't my question, Ethan. We're not debating about that here. Super Regional. We're not debating that here. Uh, but if they're going to do that, right, that one, that removes... A team, a team match that these top players will need to yep. play. They're adding yep. in a buffer this year, which I think is a great idea. Needed. Right. So are the, I, I guess the question would be like, are the, the struggles that people talk about the same? Like, I think you're already mitigating some of them. I'd love to yep. see what that looks like before we make the call on moving to, to November, but I think you reasoned it well. Yeah. Next question. You have to choose one player to play a match for your life against an unknown opponent on an unknown surface your choices are Chris Rodash and Yaki Montez or Jeffrey von der Schulenberg. Oh, God. Uh, I will begin this by saying I am lucky to have the opportunity to choose any of the three of them, right? I mean, to have those three as guys to choose between, none of them are bad options, right? Um, so I don't want any of them to be offended, but uh, I have to go with, with Yaki. I mean, if, if you've been lucky enough to get to witness Inyaki play in person, you know why he's, he's sort of the pick, which is the level of fight and tenacity and the, the intensity with which he plays. And I mean, we just, right. We just spoke about, you just of, went through the, the, his gauntlet. the run yeah, exactly. that he went through. Right. I mean, we were going into NCAAs, the idea that Inyaki was going to run the table and beat Sam Riffis defending NCAA singles winner in a, in a hugely important match, by the way, Johannes Monday indoors when Johannes Monday probably has a foot on on Inyaki, and then and then Gabe Diallo who was also one of the hottest players in the country in the national finals. I mean Inyaki not only not only was he in all of those matches, he won all of those matches in the biggest moment. So hard hard not to pick him. Yep. And by the way, uh, Ethan Moskowski, a student of the Andres Pedroso School of Politically Correct, was a great answer. <laughs> Former coach would be proud. Last question here. Ad or no ad scoring? Uh, right, you're no ad, no problem. So no ad, uh, no problem. So no, no ad, no problem. Look, I when I was practicing with UEA, depending on who I was practicing with, I was just happy to get to Deuce a lot of the time. So, uh, you know, when 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 dealing with Inyaki, Jeffrey, and Chris, getting to Deuce is is good. I mean, I probably have a better shot at winning a game if we play no ad. So I'll go with no ad. There you go. Uh, Ethan Moskowski, a fan of No Ad, No Problem. <laughs> Ethan, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time. Where can people follow you and your thoughts, uh, your musings on college tennis as a, cool. as a former athlete? Well, thank you for having me first and foremost. I actually have to pull up my Twitter page. I'm not even sure what it is. So it's at Ethan Moz. Uh, Ethan, spelled the way you'd think, and then M-O-S-Z, because my last name is ridiculous and I like to shorten it to make it more, uh, more doable. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure whenever you want to talk UVA tennis. If anyone ever wants to talk UVA <laughs> tennis, I have an endless amount of time to discuss UVA tennis, even as I begin law school. So uh, any time anyone wants to chat UVA tennis, uh, please, please feel free to, to shoot me a message. Yeah, we should say Ethan on the pod today, decked out in UVA gear. Still, I actually, who's. I have I have my national championship shirt on oh, underneath okay. underneath my sweater. <laughs> In case anyone was wondering if I'd actually had to come down from winning NCAAs or from the team winning NCAAs, I didn't win it. Uh, yeah, no, I haven't. I'm still enjoying it. It's still very much, yes, on oh, his body. It's still great. It's so, still great. 
Ethan, best of luck in your journey on law school. Hope to chat with you again. Thanks for so much for doing this. Thank you. It was great to be here.